Our guest on the show this week is Bruce McCarthy. Bruce is an author, a speaker, a founder, and an all-around product person. He has a passion for helping teams work together to develop compelling products and services. He's been called the face of Boston Product Management, and in fact, he's in his third term as president of the Boston Product Management Association, which is the largest organization for product managers and product marketers in New England. Bruce has been a product management practitioner for over 25 years. In that time, he's learned a lot about the profile of a successful product manager, their background, skill set, most common responsibilities, and their biggest challenges. I asked Bruce, what's the hardest part about being a product manager? As you might imagine, we use this as a segue into talking about his book, Product Roadmaps Relaunched. What is a product roadmap? It might sound like a question with an obvious answer, but most product managers will admit it's not as clear and consistent as it should be. Who are they for? What are the components? And how do they change over time? I think you'll enjoy our discussion about the evolution of product management and where product roadmaps go bad. Let's start off talking a little bit about your background. So how did you get into product management? Well, like a lot of people, I kind of fell into it backward. Um, it seems like everybody has a story about how they had some other job and then they found out about product management. Jana Bastow tells a story. She's the CEO of ProdPad. Um, where, that her boss, when she was a project manager, said to her, I think you'd make a good product manager. And she said, well, that sounds interesting. What's that? And um, it was sort of similar for me. I'd uh, been in marketing. I'd been in sales. Uh, I did a startup um, in home environmental inspections, of all things. And I had to do all of the entrepreneurial things. I did everything from developing software for the inspectors to uh, doing the business plan, raising money, the marketing, you name it, I did it. Um, and then when that startup crashed and burned, I was looking for a job. And a small software company in Waltham was looking for a product manager, um, somebody with a marketing background. And I misinterpreted it, actually, as uh, them wanting a marketing person, because I didn't really know what was a product manager any differently than that. Um, but I interviewed with them, and they liked me, and I liked them, and they hired me. Um, and I quickly found out that it was the most fun job you can have, at least um, for somebody like me who likes to dabble in a little bit of everything and be involved in all the different functions of the company and do that integrating, synthesizing job of pulling it all together into a single plan. So it was, it was sort of an accident. I didn't even know what it was when I got myself into it. Um, over, I got really lucky. The guy who hired me, John Wang, went on to become the CMO of HTC, uh, was a genius in product management, self-taught, and he taught me all the essentials about cross-functional teams, about starting with why we're doing this, and about um, the nuts and bolts of the job. My worlds are colliding. So just last week, I was sitting at this table interviewing Jana for our podcast as oh, well. Oh, really? She, of course, was not at the table. She being in overseas, right, but right, I right. was doing it via Skype. And so I asked her, of course, the same question. <laughs> so I was Did chuckling. she tell that story? Uh, basically, essentially. like she was, she was offered the idea of doing, becoming, being product manager, and her response was, sounds great, what's that? Yeah. I had a similar entry into product management in that, um, and actually an entry into product management and product marketing. I created or was the first person to hold those roles in two different companies. Yep, yep. 
it, it just didn't, neither role existed. There was a need for it. And either I or my bosses at the time said, hey, would you consider doing this? And the reason was because I had just shown an inclination or an interest in some of the activities that they themselves thought were in, uh, part of a product manager or a product marketer's job. And I thought, I thought sure, why not? Yeah. I ask it all the time, you know, how did you get started? And, and the responses are almost always the same. It's always, oh, I fell into it, or I got into it by accident, yep. or I didn't start in it. And of course, no one starts in it. And um, well, that's often, the thing. it's it's not an entry level job. No, it requires a sort of a, a general understanding of how the business works, and so there's huge advantage in having done at least one, maybe several other roles right. before getting into product management. Uh, and it just requires a certain amount of maturity and leadership in order to be able to be effective in the job. The big challenge, of course, is that the number one criterion for hiring managers for any product management job is that you've done it before, Right. that they see product manager somewhere on your resume, which, of course, is a catch-22. Right. Now, that's true for any job. It's hard to get a job until you've done it, and it's hard to do it and, uh, without having had the job, but it's triply hard in yeah. product management. Some of the more forward-thinking, local, at least, tech companies have seemed to have backed off on that, and in fact, so if you listen to David Cancel, for example, he has a yep. somewhat famous... I joke with him, I'm calling it clickbaity, uh, <laughs> a blog title, you know, why I don't hire product managers. Right. And what he means is, if you read it, is it's not that I don't hire them. Of course, we have them, but I don't go seeking for those with the experience, quite the opposite. I like those who have not been product managers because he, f- he feels like those with deep product management experience have lost some of that curiosity and digging and talking to the user, perhaps, uh, that I, I may be misremembering it. I but think that's BS, uh, frankly. I yeah. think it's that he... I'll probably delete that because I think I'm misremembering it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do know that article, and I yeah. had this conversation with him okay. about, um, about why he hires uh, people who haven't had product management experience yeah. before. And I think it's that he just has a very specific way that he wants it done, yeah. and he wants them to learn it from him rather than having their own uh, perspective on it. He wants it done a certain way. And I, uh, I think that's fine as a yeah. CEO um, or the head of a product organization that you have a perspective on how it should be done mm-hmm. and you don't, um, you don't want to have to get people to unlearn different ways of doing right. it. There are a lot of ways of doing it. There are, a lot of, there are a lot of different companies of different sizes in different industries and they have product managers who are doing it different ways, and that's probably the right thing. Mm-hmm. D- uh, David's uh, particular situation is not going to be universal. Right. And just because someone has done product management before doesn't mean that their experience is actually super applicable to your situation. Right. In fairness, he also says he, he doesn't believe in product roadmaps, and yet he clearly does, and he just what he's saying or writing is, the traditional way that has not worked is not what he believes in. He believes very much in the now, next, later, yep. making sure it's not a two-year horizon, which is ridiculous, and making sure it is hyper-connected to your users and your customers. So, And also making sure that it's not about deliverables and dates. Right. It's about problems to be solved. Right. It's about broad themes. It's not feature function overload. It's not date-driven. It's not a release plan. Right. Yeah. I knew he was going to take that point of view, and so it was one of the first interviews that I did yeah. for the product roadmapping book. 
and it didn't disappoint. I got yeah. uh, some terrific quotes that we yeah. used in the book. There's another related phenomenon, though, that I think things are changing in the product management world. Um, you know, when you and I started in product management, um, or when Jana started, for that matter, it wasn't that well-known a discipline. Mm. Most people didn't know about it. Or so maybe Microsoft or something, yeah. yeah. Or maybe they thought they misheard project manager. Yeah. Um, I've, I've, I've actually introduced myself as a product manager and had, had people say back to me, oh, what's it like being a project manager? I don't know. Ask one. <laughs> <laughs> it's different. Yeah. Um, I even ended up writing a, um, uh, a short piece, like a 10-page report on the difference between product management and project management for O'Reilly hmm. um, for their online Safari subscription service because they're so frequently confused. But what's different now is that as technology has spread from tech-focused businesses to virtually all businesses, and as businesses have started investing in um, technology, either they need a presence on the web or they need an e-commerce capability or they need an, a mobile app or they, they need some sort of technology enablement for their even very traditional um, business, um, they've realized that hiring a bunch of engineers and sort of throwing them at um, building some stuff is not the recipe for success, mm. at least not by itself. Um, they've spent many of these big companies millions of dollars and several years uh, investing in technology with not a lot to show for it in terms of business results. Mm. And so I think in the last few years, people have been casting around saying, who is it that was supposed to be driving the strategy for our use of technology? This digital transformation thing, who's in charge? And recently, they've woken up to the fact that the job of the product manager is to figure out the strategy, pull together a plan, get everybody on board, and provide some context and some direction for that technology-driven effort. Uh, so um, companies all over the map have started opening positions for product managers. Um, and there's, a, there's essentially a labor shortage in product management right now. At the same time, um, well, for example, um, I looked on LinkedIn uh, about a month ago. I looked, I did a search for how many people in the U.S. have the word product in their title. And it came out to just over a half a million people. And then I looked for, on LinkedIn, how many open positions are there with the word product in the title. And there were over a million. So there are about twice as many open jobs in product management, if you just look at LinkedIn, as there are people in product management mm. right now. I, um, that's, that's a significant labor shortage. Yeah. And at the same time, it seems like um, a lot of uh, employees have, um, or p potential employees have woken up to the fact that product management is a fun and interesting and, and promising and cool career to have. Uh, but they have the catch-22 problem. I talked to um, the folks at uh, Babson in their MBA program, and they uh, traditionally, Babson's MBA program is focused on entrepreneurs. And if you talk to, if you go back two, three years and you talk to the students and ask them what do they want to be, they would all say, I want to start my own thing, or I want to be a management consultant. Now, according to um, the folks at Babson, just about all of them want to be product managers. And that's, hmm. a, that's a, a chasm between supply and demand that's difficult to cross without 
the requisite experience. I'm starting to see, I, I used to say on these podcasts and conversations that there, there was no, you know, you ask 10 people what a product manager does, you get 10 different responses. Mm. Still largely true, I think. But part of that was because there, there was no formal product management training or course. Well, now I've stopped that latter statement because Julia Austin, professor at Harvard Business School, teaches yep. product management 101 and 102. And so we're starting to see in the business schools this formal introduction to what is it, what is the role, what's required, the skills required, developing those skills very pragmatically. Yep. Because um, interesting, I back to when we started the discussion about how people get started in product management and how often the first few sentences of a job rec are, you know, product management experience. It felt like to me it used to be that business analyst was the almost the junior, it was the, the first thing you did on your way to becoming a junior product manager, then a product manager, then a senior product manager. I haven't seen the business analyst role as much anymore. There's two reasons for that. Um, one is that a lot of business, ma uh, business analysts have simply been recast as product owners. It's the same or a very similar kind of job in an agile context, and mm -hmm. so many businesses have moved to agile development. And so they've just taken those people and they've given them new titles. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's good and it's bad. It's good in that they're acknowledging the role is different, but in practice, they're not often giving them a, more than um, a one-time training mm -hmm. um, in, uh, in scrum process and hoping that, um, that, it, gets, um, that it gets better. Uh, but the second reason I think that you're seeing that um, uh, less often now is that um, there are a number of um, gateway, um, if you will, or vector jobs on the way into product management. And business analysis is just one of them. Mm -hmm. And in my mind, it's not actually the best one. Yeah. Um, a business analyst it should be good at getting down detailed requirements. Um, but many of the, um, many of the, m much of the training um, in the past for business analysts has been kind of straightforwardly asking the customer, what do you want? Or tell me about um, the tasks that you do today. And the job of a product manager is to get behind that and find out what the underlying problem is that really needs to be solved. Yeah. I instead of asking, uh, what do you want? Or what do you do? A good product manager will ask, why do, why you, do you want do that? that? Yeah. And why do you want that? Otherwise, they end up just trying to build a better way to do that. Right. It's the old Henry Ford faster horse right, comment, right? right? Um, and that's okay, but it's not really um, transformative. It's not disruptive. It doesn't, yeah. um, it doesn't take advantage of the real promise of technology. Yeah. You mentioned link the LinkedIn analysis. It would be interesting, if not ice cream headache-inducing, to break that down a level further, uh, I found that as I got into, I spent the majority of my product management and product marketing career in healthcare and operations and healthcare technology companies. And with, with a couple sidesteps into pharma and biotech, and product manager in the pharma space mm. is very different than I'm sure. product manager in the tech space. It's more the general manager or the owner of the product 
the pill, the drug, yeah. which is very different than the owner of the product technology, at least in, in terms of their responsibilities as I begin to It's more of a marketing it. job because the product it, yeah. is established. It's even it, more marketing and sales, and there's a heavy dose, as you would imagine, no pun intended, uh, of uh, regulatory and research. Yeah. Um, anyway, side well, stuff. But. Uh, it's also very interesting the way titles are different in other industries that uh, I met a guy whose um, job had always been strategic marketing. Uh, and I was like, oh, okay, what's that? And he started telling me about it. And he said, well, you need to understand the customer and their problems, and you need to figure out what product would effectively solve those problems in a differentiated way in mm. which we can make money. And I'm as I'm listening, I'm like, well, this guy sounds like a product manager to yeah. me. And it turned out that he was in the manufacturing industry. Okay. And yeah. strategic marketing and manufacturing is really what we would call the same thing as tech product management. Yeah. And so I started telling him about my job, and he said, it sounds to me like we do the same job. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just a matter of Who's got the better terminology, yeah. right? All right. What's the hardest part of product management? <laughs> well, it's, it comes out of what we've been talking about. Because it's different everywhere, um, the hardest part is figuring out where to focus. There's so many things that as a product manager are probably on your list of things that you should do. Uh, and it's not really possible to do all of those things. So uh, picking and choosing, prioritizing, is one of the hardest things that product managers do. Um, and honestly, most of us don't do it that well. Uh, we, could, we could do it better, and we have to do it better. I always say that the quickest way to do effective prioritization is to connect the strategic with the tactical. There's a thousand tactical things that you should be doing. Which ones are the most highly leveraged depends on your strategy. Should you be listening to your customers? Well, sounds good. Motherhood and apple pie, right? Well, it depends actually on whether your strategy is to continue to target the current customer base or to pivot to move up market or down market or to some other market, in which case listening to your customers is actually a distraction. Or if you're planning on inventing something entirely new, then listening to all the complaints about your existing product, not helpful. Yeah. So uh, not that I want to be heretical about not listening to your customers, but that what things you prioritize and what tactical activities you engage in on your endless list really needs to be um, focused by your strategy. So if somebody says, what's, what's the hardest thing you can you know, poll 10 product managers and they'll probably say prioritization. But I will say that the problem underlying that is connecting strategy and execution. And we actually did just that, uh, it, albeit unscientific. Uh, in other words, we did it on Twitter and a Google forum, but we, <laughs> we did poll uh, our community and it was pretty cut and dry that prioritization was, I mean, it, by, by a long shot. Yeah it was the biggest thing, the most vexing challenge for them. And that also nicely dovetailed with a Mind the Products annual survey yep. as, as being, it wasn't as clear cut, but it was still clearly well, the biggest challenge. And I did, I put out a user voice forum five years ago now mm -hmm. um, and asked the same question. I, I gave them 10, I seeded it with 10 problems of product managers from my own experience and I wanted to know how do other people prioritize those things? So I just asked, you know, user voice has this voting um, capability. So I just asked, 
vote for your favorite problem and then you know tell me in the in the comments your your thoughts about your flavor of that problem and prioritization came up to the top yeah. so it things have not changed in that way so very related to prioritization um, you can't execute what I'm about to say without then prioritizing it but road mapping yeah so you wrote you co-wrote a book product roadmaps relaunched um, why did you write the book and how did you decide on that as your topic well it it uh, it really came out of uh, partly that same research number two on the list um, after prioritization was road mapping um, and I back then when I did that survey started writing and talking about both topics uh, and I started developing a product called Rex for um, for uh, road mapping and it included a prioritization um, capability um, now I think that I might have been a little ahead of the market with that product and also I don't in the end I'm not sure people really were looking for a road mapping product mm -hmm. per se because everybody's process is a little bit different. And because a lot of people are really looking for more of a workflow, a JIRA-like thing, I think, in for product management. Um, but it seemed like there was still a huge problem in mm -hmm. the area of people not really having a good framework for road mapping or prioritization. So um, uh, I'd started, I started talking about it. I started presenting at Product Camp, actually, um, about prioritization and then about road mapping and then about product vision and all of this cluster of things around what are we doing and why are we doing it. Um, and uh, every year at Product Camp, the audience for those topics got bigger and yeah. bigger. So um, I said, all right, we need to do something uh, about this. It had been on my, um, on my backlog of uh, things I really should do for a couple of years when it was CTUD actually after Product Camp at the bar who twisted my arm and said, you know, we really ought to write a book about this. Hmm. Um, and he said, you know, if anybody's going to write a book about this, it, uh, it needs to be you, Bruce, because you've been talking about this stuff for so long. So, uh, so we did. So we, um, we, uh, we talked to O'Reilly, and um, they, didn't, um, they didn't blink. They said, yes, we are, we are hearing about this left and right and center as well. Uh, if you can write a book about this, we will publish it. It's interesting you mentioned the software and perhaps being ahead of your time and maybe even that it wasn't the big, having, no one was screaming, I need software to solve my product road mapping ills. It's more about framework and process, right? Yeah. If you focus on the software, I found when I struggled most, it was when I was spending too much time on the physical presentation of the roadmap. Yeah. Right? And, and then you, you look up, weeks and weeks later, countless hours later, and you've been fighting with project, right? And it's yes. like, no, no, we don't, it's, a Gantt chart is not what we need for the roadmap, sort of quite the opposite. What we need is a framework and a process that makes sense to everyone in the organization and can help us, help get us to the real endpoint of connecting the strategy to the tactical. And that was the other thing, was um, there are so many bad roadmaps yeah. out there. Yeah. You do a Google image search for roadmap, and you don't get what we would call in that book a roadmap. You, you get, get spreadsheets. You get spreadsheets. You get Gantt project charts. plans, Gantt charts, um, flow charts. You get features and dates. Yeah. That's what you get. And you get work plans, essentially. And what we try to communicate in the book is that that is a old-fashioned manufacturing 
waterfall, waterfall yeah. 20th century concept. It's, um, it's about resource optimization. It's not about achieving objectives. It's not about solving problems. And more and more, business is about solving problems, not about efficiency and resource utilization. It's not about can we go from a 0.2% margin to a 0.3% margin. It's about how do we change the game yeah. and uh, be, be really innovative and stay ahead of the competition so we can have 80% margin. And I think one of the many things that leads to that, that style of roadmap presentation is measuring the success of the product team based on how many features and functions they released and not based on whether or not anyone even cares that you released that. Right. right? You end up with, and, and this is partly a, a commentary on Waterfall too, I presume, or I, I suppose, but you, you end up releasing something and then it's, it's, it's the, the old adage, if a tree falls and no one's there to hear it, is it <laughs> did, you, did it make a sound? If you release something and none of your users care, did, did right. you get, should you take credit for that? Is it worthwhile? Did it move the needle for you? Right. And there's something that's, uh, not to overstate, but beautiful in the simplicity of the now, next, later. It just makes so much sense. When you look at it, whether you're in engineering or in sales or you're the, the, the market, Right, I can see that presentation and understand. Okay, they're focusing on this today. They'll get to this is coming up next, yep. and there's a bunch of stuff that that they're thinking about. But if I'm if I'm a smart user, and I see someone tell me what they're building with a date on it that's more than six eight months out, I'm probably saying, well, they're they don't understand what they're doing because <laughs> that. That's, I don't know if I want that yet. And then some of what you build now and next may change whether or not I Absolutely. feel good about that later stuff. Now, so. the now, I love the now, next, later format as well, and I use it um, as sort of my starting place when yeah. I'm doing a roadmap. There are situations where some, uh, some more specificity about dates makes yeah. sense. If, you, I still, um, if, if you've got a lot of cross-functional dependencies, then having an idea about whether something is coming in the next six days or the next six months is useful. Yeah. Um, knowing whether something is this year or next year is useful. I still say keep it as essentially as high level, keep the dates as broad and open as you can get away with yeah. given the constraints of your business. And I don't mean given the constraints of the personality of your boss, yeah. but I do mean the real constraints yeah. of coordination across business units or with your partners. You know, if you're in the, um, if you're selling through retail, well, your distributor or Best Buy probably needs to know whether your new receiver is going to be in, uh, is going to be available for this holiday season or next holiday season. If you make a product that somehow benefits the health insurance industry, you need to know when open enrollment occurs so that right. you can hit that date. <laughs> and there are some... Otherwise, some you hard, might as well wait another 12 months. <laughs> there are some hard dates that really matter, yeah. like um, regulatory requirements yeah. or um, in, the, in the education industry, um, if you are planning on rolling out changes, well, you're not rolling them out in September. You're just not. Yeah. Um, but that aside, you, um, the, more you can, uh, the more you can open up um, the, the roadmap to... Uh, to the, the here's who we're serving, here's why we're in business, 
here are the problems we think are important to solve in this space. And the less you focus on features and dates, the less you focus on essentially what looks like a, um, a work plan, and the more you focus on a, um, a statement of intent and direction in delivering value to your customer, the more um, engaged you find that people looking at your roadmap are. Instead of it being like a dry recitation like you're reading off a spreadsheet, it's like, no, we are going to make your life, your situation, your business better. Hmm. That, that's a far more interesting conversation. Agreed. So where do roadmaps go bad? Sounds like a, a TV show. <laughs> when right. roadmaps go bad, where, how do, where do product managers get, get it wrong? Where does it fall down? Well, right where we were talking about it. It mm. falls down with they get bogged down in the details. And it's not just about the dates. It's also about the deliverables. So you were saying earlier, if a, if a feature falls in the forest, um, does it make any money? And the answer is <laughs> Essentially, yeah. no. Yeah. Um, no, it doesn't. And um, there are some pretty scary statistics out, the, out there about the number of features that are never used, uh, like something on the order of 80%. Really? of features never get used. The, the, my favorite story about that is that 80% at a certain point, somewhere around probably version six or seven, 80% uh, of the requests for new features in Microsoft Office were features they already had. People just didn't know about it. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so it's really easy to get this stuff wrong. It's yeah. really easy to think that you have thought through everything about what's really needed in a feature, either whether the feature's needed at all or how to design it appropriately or who it's for and what situation they're going to um, need it in, it's really easy to be confident and wrong. And so um, confidently putting out a list of the features that you plan to ship, in your mind internally, the vision of what value that adds to your customer and your business is very clear. But to the average customer or executive or investor, it's not. Mm -hmm. I guarantee it's really not that clear. Yeah. So um, you really need to paint a picture of why we're doing this, who we're doing this for, to kind of reality test all of those features, even conceptually when you're writing them down. But even more so, you're probably going to learn along the way which features really matter and which features really do solve the problems that customers have well. So I would much rather build the roadmap around that, yeah. around problems rather than solutions. I was at a conference in Lisbon uh, a number of years ago where I delivered a roadmap presentation for the company I worked for, ATG, at the time. And I did it in that problem-solving themes kind of way, and I didn't list features that we were going to ship on any particular date. And nonetheless, um, I started getting a lot of questions about, well, are you going to have this feature? Are you going to have that feature? And one particular um, ISV who served one of the largest um, uh, grocery chains in Spain came up to me and said, in a very challenging, almost bullfighter-like kind of way, well, are you going to have this particular feature? And you, are you going to have it in this release? And I said, well, it's one of the things we're looking at as a solution to this problem. I know that your customer has this problem, and um, 
we're trying hard to figure out what's the right answer, the best answer to this problem. And I don't want to um, constrain my team's options about the best way to solve the problem. Um, and he looked really kind of deflated until I turned it around and said, but I would love to talk with you and your customer about different ways to solve the problem and which ones would work best for you. Hmm. And once, once he got the idea that I wasn't just telling him no, but that I was really working in his and his customer's interest and I wanted to involve him in the process, it was all smiles. Constraints are really useful for yeah. focus, for prioritization. Yeah. You know, the classic rookie product manager mistake when you are porting a product to a new platform or uh, re-platforming a product, you know, rebuilding it, re-architecting it, is to say, well, we just need all the same functions we had right. before, right? And no, that's probably wrong because a bunch of the features are not actually used very much. Right. Um, and if you can actually dig down to, well, let's think again about who our customer is and what problem we're really solving for them and think about it from scratch, you can probably eliminate 80% yeah. of the features and deliver 80% of the value that you were before. And a lot of you can kill off and no one will ever even know you killed them. And so we saw it happen when products were going from an on-premises solution to a SaaS solution and when they went from SaaS to mm -hmm. mobile. It may not be that linear, but each of those steps forced product teams to think about, you know, do I really need to spend all my energy and resources on feature parity from one platform to another? Or is this an opportunity to say, we don't need all these features to come over? I have a story about that um, that, uh, that I learned a lot from. Um, I, the company I worked for, that same one that was my first product manager job, got acquired by a big company. And there, were, there was a, essentially a duplicate product that they had that wasn't as good as, the, uh, as what we had developed. It was a web um, uh, facility for uh, purchasing and downloading mailing lists. And um, so I said I was given the job of figuring out how to get all of the users over from the, uh, the legacy product onto our newer, more modern, more capable product. So the first thing I did was, of course, I interviewed a bunch of the users of the uh, legacy product to make sure that I understood who they were and what their needs were. And I quickly discovered that they were pretty much the same kind of users as we had on the, uh, designed the, uh, the newer product for um, in our smaller company. So that was great. So there wasn't a huge delta in the functionality we needed to add. There were a few things um, that made sense, but the the, who the customer was and the underlying problems they had were the same. So we um, announced at a certain point in time hey, we're sunsetting this old product, um, and here's, uh, here's this new product that you can have. We've already set you up an account. Here it is, and you can, you can start using the new thing. Here's a tutorial. Here's the phone number of your support person if you need help. All those, those nice things. That, everything was going really, really smoothly until one of the salespeople uh, started complaining that his number one customer was really unhappy with the new product really was refusing to move on to the new product, was threatening to leave us if we didn't keep around the old product. And uh, in talking with the salesperson, I was getting some weird signals about the features that he really valued in the old product. They didn't make sense to me. They weren't consistent with um, 
what I thought the needs of the customer were. And I was racking my brains. It was like, what did I get wrong? What did I miss here? So finally, I, uh, of course, I managed to get on the phone with the customer himself and started asking about uh, his business. And I quickly found out that he was an outlier. He was not like all the rest of the customers. He was actually not a marketing person buying mailing lists. He was a broker uh, selling mailing lists to other people. Yeah. And he needed some advanced features that we hadn't designed for. Yeah. Well, actually, that the original product wasn't really designed for him either. But it just happened to have yeah. a couple of things that he had taken advantage of that worked for him. Um, and uh, he was virtually the only significant customer of that type on the product. So uh, fortunately, the company had another product just for brokers, mm. which he didn't know about. So yeah. we were able to move him onto that yeah. and move things along. Yeah, I was. I, before you said that, I was going to say, well, that sounds like a case of where you, you found out sort of um, unintentionally that you had someone using your product that was not, you could argue that they're not our target market. Right. It's a use case. It's fine. They've been doing it, but that's not our strategy. It's not our market. So if we right. lose him, it's unfortunate, but we can't support that. You're right. And fortunately, we didn't have to lose him as a company. Yeah. We did lose him in terms of that product, but yeah. that's, that's okay. We yeah. made the customer happy yeah. and we continue, and we saved the relationship. Right. What's the biggest product management mistake that you've made or if you don't make any mistakes, if you, <laughs> that, you've, that you've seen made? Well, I don't. I don't make mistakes. Yeah, that's a fair answer. <laughs> uh, no, no. Uh, seriously, everybody has to learn by making mistakes. Yeah. My uh, favorite story about that was going back to my first product management job again. Um, I built uh, a new product. It was the second product that the customer that the company had ever built. Um, the uh, the business had been entirely built on one. Uh, CD-ROM-based product, so that's dating me a little bit. Um, and we were moving into internet products, and so I created a complementary product that would work with our CD-ROM product. The CD-ROM product was, again, it vended mailing lists um, using a meter, a physical dongle. Um, and I built this online letter shop where you could upload your list from the CD-ROM, and we did a partnership with Pitney Bowes for them to print uh, pieces for you to do a mailing. Um, and I thought this is going to be awesome. And it was like the world's first online letter shop. Um, and the, um, the thing that I forgot, even though I had talked to the customers, figured out the problem, uh, figured out the pricing, figured out exactly what the minimum um, to ship was. The, we didn't have the concept of minimum viable product, but it was essentially that um, back in the day. I had worked everything out from the customer need to the delivery, except the marketing and sales. Mm. Um, I had forgotten to talk to our marketing team and our sales team about how were we going to bring this thing to market. And we had this really effective machine for selling CD-ROMs. It was great. We were growing like gangbusters. Um, and when I said to them, and here's our terrific online letter shop, they were like, how yeah, we're, we not sell that? We're, yeah. Not, we're not really doing online stuff. We're not really selling um, online, and um, I, this seems like a distraction to, uh, yeah. to us executing on our um, plan for selling the CD-ROMs. The price point isn't high enough for me to yeah. care. And uh, I, I learned a hard, hard lesson that day about, first of all, tying it to strategy, and second of all, doing your, um, managing your stakeholders, yeah. making sure you've got the whole plan 
from, from development uh, to delivery to sales and marketing all figured out, and you've got the organization behind you. So tell me a little bit about your involvement in the Boston Product Management Association. Sure. Um, I'm the president of, um, of BPMA. I uh, have been as my third term, um, and I've been involved for five, six years as a volunteer and a board member. But the organization's been around since 2001, and I've been a member um, ever since then, uh, going to events and so on. BPMA is a community-based organization for product managers and for the companies that are hiring um, product managers. It's all volunteer-run, um, and it's one of the largest um, community organizations like this, uh, one of the uh, largest uh, regional organizations like this. There's a similar one in Silicon Valley, for example. Is there a, a, a national body uh, as well that you're a member of? Or? No, BPMA is its okay. own thing. Um, it's also one of the longest standing ones. Okay. There are a few um, dotted around the world. Uh, we do regular monthly events. We just had one last night um, at uh, Bentley University, and that one was on um, the, uh, the panel discussion on uh, the uh, working relationship between product and UX. And we, we hold events um, all around the Boston area, sometimes downtown, sometimes out in the suburbs, um, usually at local companies that are interested in hiring product managers and would like to, um, would like to host an event. And uh, we, usually, um, we usually have speakers or interactive sessions on things of interest to product people. Uh, we have a, uh, an, a summer party coming up in July, which should be a lot of fun as well. Party. Yeah. <laughs> and we have an annual career fair. Um, we had it at WeWork South Station a couple of months ago. Mm. It's usually one of our larger events um, where we invite local companies who are hiring and the local community of people who are interested in product management jobs. Mm. And we usually get a couple of hundred people to, uh, to come to that. We also have a blog called Product Hub where members can write about their experiences and exchange tips and, and so on. Recently, we've changed our format a lot to focus on speakers as practitioners rather than uh, consultants or uh, authors coming in and doing 50 slides. We have a uh, discussion with somebody who's doing the same job that all the rest of us are doing and maybe has learned a few things that they could pass along and um, to have an, uh, a deeper discussion. And I think that's working out really well. It's exactly what people who are in the trenches really need. I've, I've said this many times before, too, and, and I'm always careful to, to couch it with, I realize that this is the environment that I know, but it feels to me like the product management community offers a lot of opportunities to interact, network, grow, yeah. teach one another. Yeah. Again, I, I'm sure there are other roles that would say the same thing, probably, but it feels to me like, and I don't know if that's because of the aforementioned lack of formal training and experience or right? entries into the role, yeah. but historically it feels like it's a community that very much is open to grabbing, you know, whether it's a, a formal organization like BPMA or it's just, hey, let's grab coffee and talk about, because, you know, you and I have problems that we're trying to solve. Maybe you can help me solve some of mine and, and the opposite. I think that's really true, and I think you've hit something there that it is about the fact that there's very little formal training and that most of us kind of fell into it backwards, uh, and that, that makes us eager to connect with other people. Um, I also think that um, 
the example of BPMA has a program called uh, our Product Executives Forum, and it's a monthly breakfast for VPs and uh, product and, and CPOs and um, directors in larger companies. And invariably, while we do talk about best practices, people come away saying, it's just so good to connect with other people who know what I'm talking about and right. know what I'm going through. Because product management, even though, even with all of this um, rise in, um, in hiring of product managers, it's still a bit of a lonely job. You're usually outnumbered eight or 10 to one by your engineers and by your salespeople. And by QA and right. marketing, yeah. And so it's, it's hard to have somebody else to really um, talk shop with, but also just talk about you know, the, uh, the, the soft side of it, um, sure. the what's it like doing the job. Uh, and so a community is a natural place uh, and be, uh, for, for that to come together. And BPMA is really uh, trying hard to fill that niche. And we've actually expanded into some um, adjacent niches as well, based on demand. A few of the board members of, for B, from BPMA started a sister group called Boston Women in Product mm -hmm. a couple of years ago. I know you've interviewed. Been on our show. Right. <laughs> uh, and we still cooperate closely uh, mm -hmm. under the BPMA umbrella. And if you go to bostonproducts.org, you can see BPMA events, BWP events, and we have another program called the uh, Agile Product Open which is an ongoing program about the intersection of agile process and practice hmm. with product management. The Dirt is a production of Fresh Tilled Soil, a UX and UI design company solving hard design problems and bringing complex product ideas to life. You can find previous episodes of The Dirt on your favorite podcasting platforms, including iTunes and SoundCloud. Be sure and click the follow or subscribe button to receive the latest episodes. And as always, please give us a review and send us feedback. Have an idea for a podcast? Do you want to be a guest of the podcast? Drop us a line at thedirt at freshtilledsoil.com or hit us up on Twitter at The Dirt Show. Mm -hmm.